beauties of the church is that it took the marring and the, and the death of the Son of God to redeem us. And we should never hide that. We should never try to do away with that. We should celebrate that with great uh, affection and great open hearts to the Lord. So that's why we sing about blood and the cross and sacrifice and death. Because without that, we don't have salvation. And that's what we want to talk about tonight. We want to you know, talk about the work of Christ in salvation. Before we do that, uh, you know, I think it's good if we just um, think of for a moment about <clears throat> the overall structure of what um, God has done. All right, so I just want to run through some basic biblical theology and systematic theology with you quickly, and then we're going to look at a few passages, then I'm going to open the floor up and we're going to talk some as a family. I'm looking forward to that, so I don't want to steal all the time. But if we just think about it, um, before the world began, God within himself, in his triune being, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, had what is known as a covenant of redemption. You say, well, I've never read about that in the Bible. Well, the reason is, is because it's kind of like the kingdom of God. It's, a, it's, it's underneath everything in the Bible. So you don't, it doesn't have to be named because it's assumed. But it does peek its head forward. Um, one of the greatest places you take your Bible and turn to see the covenant of redemption is John 17. John 17. In John 17, <clears throat> Jesus praying in the garden just prior to his crucifixion. says in his prayer, Father, verse, verse 1, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given Him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given Him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So Jesus is praying and he's talking about the glory which he held with the Father prior to his coming in eternity past. And then he, he begins to pray. He shifts to begin to pray. Uh, for his people. Now look at verse 6 says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I'm coming to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the Scriptures might be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. 
I've given them your word, and the world hate, hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but are not, uh, excuse me, I, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrated myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask, he says, for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word that they may all be one just as you, Father, in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire... <clears throat> that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am. So to, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. So in his prayer, Jesus talks about the unity he has with his Father from before the world began. And you notice when he got down towards the end of his prayer, he says, uh, Father, I desire, in verse 24, that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. That in mind, look at Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. So what Paul does is takes what Jesus taught, not just in the prayer, but in his life, and applies it. And what he does is look in verse 3 of chapter 1. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Verse 4. Even as he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. So God knew Christ prior to the world, and He knew those He had chosen prior to the foundation of the world. So we're seeing glimpses, and I could go through uh, passage after passage. If you, if you go through all of chapter 1, verses 3 through 14, you see the Trinitarian work that's involved in salvation. The Father planning, the Son accomplishing, the, the, the Spirit sealing. All of those roles were predetermined prior to the foundation of the world. What we call that in theology is the covenant of redemption. The pact, the agreement by God with God to save who he will save. Okay, And that that's the, kind of undergirds everything. Before they created anything, this was their plan. So what they did was set out to create a world in which their plan, their ultimate plan is accomplished. And so that's where we really need to start from. First of all, is that there is an overriding plan. Architectural plan is the way it's looked at. Um, and it is being carried out by God through His grace with His people. All right? That's prior to creation. All right, so now we're ready to talk about 
how we got where we're at and how we're saved. How did we get where we're at? When we were created, we were created, man was created, mankind was created sinless. He was without sin, but he was not perfect. And it's a subtle distinction, but he was innocent, but he was not perfect. What's the difference between innocence and perfection? He had the ability to sin. Perfection means Christ without the ability to sin. Christ could not sin. It was impossible for him to sin. It wasn't just coincidence that he made it through life without sinning. He could not. He was the perfect son of God. Okay? Adam was never that. Adam was innocent in the Garden of Eden. And he was created in the, in the, in the garden. And I'm given a... a flyover, okay? I get it. Um, he was created in the garden. The garden being that place where God dwelt with his people. We know that because he had a relationship with Adam. A unique relationship with Adam. And so it's easy to see that that's a dwelling place where God dwelt with man. Would we, could we at least see that? And because he walked with him, he talked with him, he related with him, uh, intimately, man to man. No separation, right? But prior to sin is what I'm talking about. And then this innocence, this age of innocence in the garden. And in that garden, we could also see it as a, an earthly temple because God's meeting there, right? Wherever God is, we could call that a temple. We could call that a tabernacle. We could call that the dwelling place of God with man, all right? So that's going on there in the garden. And Adam in, is innocent but not perfect. So he's created in the image of God, Genesis 1, 26 and 27. Let us create man in our own image. All right? What does that mean? In our, in our likeness, in character, in, in, in character traits, in relational traits, in the ability to have relationship, real relationship. Like, unlike all the other creatures, we have the ability to have relationship. That's a part of this image of God. Character, relationship, and rulership, kingship. Where do I get that? Be fruitful, multiply. Multi multiply. Multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over it. Psalm 8 says that Adam was intended to rule over in a rulership over all of the created beings. So the likeness of God, we say, is least his character, his relationship, and his rulership. It's all in Adam there. He's the image of God on the earth. So had Adam not sinned, what we would have is a world filled with images of God reflecting the glory of God globally. All right? So what happened? What happened? Sin. Now that's a totally different context for sin, isn't it? Than what we often approach it as. When we're teaching each other about sin, we need to stop focusing on the little white lies or the little incidences of, in, of, of impurity or the instances of this, this matter of deception or, or stealing or the individual things. And we need to think of it as God thinks of it. 
mankind was created with the ability for a relationship with God like nothing else. And on that gracious offer, he could live in communion with God forever. And what he did was chose something else. He rebelled against God. He said, thanks, but no thanks. So when we start thinking about the holy God and we start saying, well, sin, but yeah, but everybody sins. We start minimalizing it. It's rebellion against the living God. Sin is that serious. Every one of us are sinners born into sin because of Adam. Adam, as the representative of the human race, the head of the human race, fell into sin and we fell with him. Psalm 51. David in his prayer says that he was born in sin. Not in a sinful relationship. His parents, as far as we know, were pure and were in marriage. But what he means is born in the condition of sin. Romans 3. When Paul lays out sin, he says, All have sinned. All. Every human has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's from conception to 90. All of them have sinned. What is sin? It's not these individual acts. It's rebellion against God at its core. So we've got to think correctly. And the reason I'm building this, you say, I thought we came to talk about what Jesus does in salvation. We are, but you can't know what he does for us until you think about where we start from. How far did we fall? Totally. In every fiber of our being, we are rebels from birth. Against God. Not against mom, not against dad, not against society. Against God. So, in this covenant of redemption, God then began to build a world that would bring him maximum glory and accomplish his ultimate goal, which was the salvation of his people. He then created all that we see and can't see, and he did that with Adam as his likeness, right? And he entered with Adam. Again, we see the language of this more than we see the ultimate statement, though there are statements in the Bible that prove this, I believe, that Adam was in a relation, a covenant, a creational covenant, if that's what we want to call it. The, the, the old-time theologians called it, the covenant of works. And what that means is, is before his sin, Adam was told, if you obey, you live, and if not, then you die. Right? And he died. He died. We know he chose death, not life. All right? So that's broken. Now, what we could do a lot, but I don't want to run now to Christ, the second Adam. Romans chapter 5. And we're going to see what Christ does in salvation in several spots. We'll stay in Romans. We're going, to, we're going to tackle a lot here. Romans 5. So our position before God, every one of us, is we are sinners. We are rebels. We are totally fallen. Okay? <clears throat> Therefore, verse 12, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Babies are not born sinless. Babies are born sinners. That's what it's saying. 
all of us, when Adam sinned, we all sinned. And so we're born in this condition. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. In other words, you didn't have to have the law to have sin. Sin was already there. Because it wasn't counted just like it is now under the law, yet death reigned. Death is the proof that sin is everywhere. You say, I don't believe everybody's a sinner. Well, they die, and they die at all ages. Just personally, it is real when you have a baby, and some of you have been through this, and I've been through this. Dr. Johansson has seen this. When you have a baby that's born and dies, you come face to face with that truth. Children are not born innocent. Death is a, is, is a curse directly tied to sin. So if a baby was sinless, it couldn't die. If a baby was not under the curse of sin in its birth, it couldn't die. The fact that babies die preached the message that no one's born innocent. Okay? All are sinners. Born under the condition of sin, born under the condition of rebellion, death reigned until Moses, even though there was n- those who sinning were not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who has, was to come. So what we have is a relationship between Adam and Christ. Adam's the first representative, Christ is the second representative. Everybody in the world exists under either the headship of Adam or the headship of Christ. The free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. Adam sinned once and plunged the whole world into sin and death, and Christ has lived perfectly and given a gift of salvation to those in his headship, underneath his leadership, and that abounds to salvation for all that are under Christ, just like death abounds to everybody who lives under Adam. Okay, that's the, what's being set up here. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. So we have this relationship of headship. Adam is the head of the whole human race, and Christ is the head of his people. Adam secured for all the human race sin, and Christ the victory over sin. Adam secured for the whole human race death, and Christ defeated death. That's, that's what Paul is preaching in Romans 5. He's setting up the federal headship of Christ. So we believe all men are sinful, and we believe the only solution for that is Christ. There's no other way. There's no other hope. That's not arrogance. That's God speaking. It is not kind to say there's other ways. That's unkind. Because God has said there is one way. There's either you're under Adam or you're under Christ. If we tell people there are multiple other ways, we're lying to them. We're making up new ways. And we're only sending them down the wrong path. So that's why the church takes such a strong stance on all of us are sinners, born under Adam, yet with Christ we have victory over sin, death, the curse. Okay? So we have that as a basis. Now, how then do we come to Christ? That becomes the next question. How do we come to Christ? And what you will hear from some is you will hear, well, we, we choose to come to Christ. I mean, <clears throat> we could come to Christ or we could not come to Christ. And 
if we come to Christ, that's good. And if we don't, then that's bad. And it's, we, you know, that's kind of the typical approach. But it's not the biblical approach. Ro- uh, uh, Romans, if we look again at Romans 8, look, flip over to Romans 8. And then I want to talk about John 6 with Romans 8 to put it in context and to help fill it out because we're in hurry here. And I want to open up and let you talk some. So the, what's, what's, was the original condition? The condition of redemption, the plan of redemption which brought about creation. And when God created, he created man in innocence, responsible for obedience, following him. And the promise that you, if you obey, you live. If you sin, you die. If you break the law, if you rebel, you die. Adam chose sin, and he chose not for himself only, but for all mankind as our representative. And so all are born in sin. That's the condition of every human. Christ is the second Adam, which allows us to be brought under a new way. It's the saving way, the eternal life of, instead of eternal death. And so we have this condition. So how do we, we're over here, how do we come here? That's, that's the final piece I want to bring up. How do we get here? Okay. Some have said, it's just you're born and Satan votes against you and God votes for you and you cast the deciding vote. Now some are bolder than others. I've actually heard that one preached. Okay. But others aren't so bold to say that, that there's a 50-50 split. Satan against you, God for you, and now you decide. But that's what they mean. It all sits on you. But I want to look at what the Scripture says and then talk through that real quickly. 28, uh, Romans 8, 28. And we know, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who call, are called according to His purpose. Everybody loves that verse. Right? But they don't want to read the next verse, which explains who the called are. For those whom he foreknew, John 17, remember, I knew you, Father, and you knew me before the world began. Peter says he is the one who was chosen or pre-known before, before time, before the world began. So here we are. Those he foreknew. He had intimate relationship. He knew them like he knows himself. Foreknew. He also predestined. He then took the next step. He foreknew them, so he predestined them. That word's really complicated. I want you to think through it with me, okay? Pre means before. Destined means to determine. So beforehand, he determined. It's a complicated word. I know everybody gets hung up on it, what it means. All right, tries to define it lots of different ways. I'm just trying to be clear. The word can only mean, I looked it up before I came in tonight, it can only mean beforehand he decided. He determined. That's all it can ever mean. It's never any case of it meaning anything else. He intimately, prognosco, foreknew, he had foreknowledge. That word knowledge is the, is the word for sex in the Old Testament. Adam knew his wife, and they had a son. It's not that Adam knew Eve's name. And he said, hey, Eve, you're a rather attractive person, and lo and behold, we're having a baby. That's not how it works. 
I know some people think the people of Grace Fellowship think that's how it works because we have so many babies and y'all are all worried about do these young kids know how this all comes about. But we know and Adam knew and God's using the same word to talk about how he knows his people beforehand. This intimate knowledge, detailed information, everything about them before he created them, he knew this about them. He foreknew them. He also predetermined, predestined, predecided to, that they would be conformed to the image of his son. He did not decide to give them a choice. He decided to make them like his son. The people that all things are working together for good for, that love him and are called according to his purpose. He knew them and he predestined them to be like his son. Go further. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. There was never a doubt in God's mind that there would be some who would be under Christ's headship. He didn't send him on the chance that somebody might come under. He sent him as so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers. It was there. Verse 30. And those whom he predestined, he called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified... He also glorified. Now, I want you to look at that verse really closely. Is there any point from verse 29 through 30 where there is an if-then statement? A contingent statement? Or is every statement there declarative? If he foreknew them, he predestined them to be like his son... If he predestined them, he called them. If he called them, he justified them. If he justified them, he will glorify them. Is that not what it says? That's what it says. There's no loopholes. There's no, well, what if this didn't happen? Or what if that didn't happen? None of that. The architectural plan of the plan of redemption prior to he created anything was, these people will be under my son and forgiven of their sins and in his image. And I will call them, and I will justify them, and I will make them glorified. It's not, a, it's not a guess, a hope, a wish. God's not up there wringing his hands that it all works out in the end. He's sitting at peace on his throne, and he's calling people to his son. People are in this category, people are in this category, and he's moving. He's calling them. Now, here's the other question. In this chain, do you see anything in there? Anything in there that is human action? Any human action in Romans 8, 28 through 29 and 30? No human action. No human actions. God is doing it. John 6, and then I'm going to let you talk. John 6, because I know it's uncomfortable when we start talking about this. I know it's, it's so contrary to what we've been taught in America. So long is this. John 6, verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me, Romans 8, 28 through 30. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Now there's the human action. 
they come to him, right? That, that's what you were looking for in Romans 8, and it wasn't there. But it's here, isn't it, in John 6. All the Father gives me will come to me, but I want you to notice something. He didn't say they might come, did he? Jesus said they will come. Definitively. He says, everyone will come that my Father has given me. All that the Father has given me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. All inclusive of everyone who comes to Christ Christ will not cast them out. He will save them. Okay? But let's keep going. So the Jews say to him, or they grumble among themselves. He, he said, I'm the bread that came down from heaven. And they said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I've come down from heaven? Jesus answered, do not grumble among yourselves. Verse 44, no one can come to me. Unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. The one my Father draws, I will raise up. Again, no ifs, ands, ors, nors, or buts. I will raise them up when my Father draws them. The, all of those people. The word draw, the word picture to best understand that is like a, a man pulling a donkey to himself. He's drawing him. Or he's raising a bucket of water out of a deep well. He's pulling him to himself. Okay? We're not going to read it. But Joshua's favorite passage in the, in the Bible is John 3, where Jesus explains salvation as birth. What does the baby do to be born? Help me. I know y'all don't have doctorate, medical degrees. It's hard. What does he do? Huh? He pees. <laughs> he eats. He eats. He gets bigger. He gets bigger. Right? And the time comes and forces outside of it, the baby, begin to act. And the baby interchanges the dance with the baby. Is the baby's at the right point of being born and it begins to... The process begins. It's a magical occurrence. It's a mystical, wonderful thing that's going on. God designed it that way. And he did it for a lot of reasons, but one of them is so you can understand your salvation. He made it happen the way he did so you would see it happening. Some of you dads have been in the room. Some of your moms, all your moms have been in the room, right? <clears throat> and and that the the, the overwhelming urge to get that baby out here, right? And you're pressing. And that baby, doggone it, is, 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 is being squeezed on and it's coming, it's coming, coming. And when that relaxation happens, it, it pulls back. There's a resistance that's going on that has to happen for a good birth to happen. You're pushing and he's straining and the, the baby's straining against the push. It's, it's resisting in a sense. Just enough to give the friction to push the baby into the world. And that's what Jesus says you're born again from above like. 
draws you. The Father draws you, and you're being born. So what's your part? Resistance off. Resistance. Uh, if I'm being squeezed. I don't like this. I don't, I'm, I'm being told in my inner being that I'm a sinner, and I need something that I can't supply for myself, and I don't like. And, but you're being overwhelmed. And some of you have had that experience very vividly, right? You were, I mean, like you could go back to the moment where you say, I was sitting at this church on that pew in this aisle, and it, and it hit me, and I just couldn't. I was, they say, I knew I was shaking a preacher's hand and telling him, I got I to gotta be saved. I need Christ. And for some of you, it was a process. It happened over time, and, it, and it, it, you know, you can't say this day, this moment, but you say, this period in my life, I was being birthed in spiritual life. Right? But the key is to understand that our part in it is coming to Christ, but how we come is that he draws us. He draws us and he brings us into salvation. That's the part of, that's the, the thing, in a sense, in the, we could talk about a lot of things, and I haven't talked about all of it, but that sets us apart from many churches that you know of and have dealings with in the community. So I want to look at what does Grace Fellowship believe about salvation? <clears throat> this is straight from our purpose statement. We believe that the Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God and the Son uh, and God the Son, both fully God and man, was conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, crucified, dead, buried, bodily resurrected, and ascended into heaven and is now seated at God the Father's right hand. He is literally coming again to gather his prepared church to be with him forever, to judge the world, lost men, Satan and his demons, and to finally and completely establish his kingdom. You won't get a lot of rub about that next statement. We believe that man was directly and immediately created by God in his image and likeness. Man lost his original innocence and freedom in Adam's sin of disobedience to the revealed will and word of God incurred the penalty of spiritual and physical death, became subject to the wrath of God, and became inherently corrupt and utterly incapable of choosing or doing that which is acceptable to God apart from divine grace. Sinful in our natures, depraved and corrupt in all our parts as a result of the original sin in our natural beings, mankind is hopelessly lost apart from God's divine grace. The purpose, happiness, and success of all men are ultimately found only in God's plan and God's design for his glory alone. The things we've talked about tonight. Next statement, final statement. We believe that salvation is wholly of God by grace on the basis of the redemption of Jesus Christ, the merit of his work and shed blood, and not on the basis of any human merit or work. This salvation of man from deserved spiritual and eternal death and wrath is by God's grace alone, through his gift of faith alone, and because of the person and work of Jesus Christ alone. The ongoing process of sanctification and the future state of glorification are likewise provided and received by grace through faith. That's what set those last two statements do set us in a little different category. <clears throat> from some of the people you may interact with, other churches that we interact with. So that's why I've chosen strategically things that I think could cause a rub. Could I brought up subjects that are not easy, in a sense. Grace Fellowship believes all people are sinners, born, 
that from birth to death are sinners by nature. They're saved by Christ alone, through grace alone, through faith alone. That's the only way they're saved. Our only part in the deal is that in our sin, God awakened us and called us and we believed, which was his gift to us, in his son, Jesus Christ. Okay. Questions? Yes. What we, um, let's talk about John 3.16 and verses like it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting or eternal life. So let's look at the verse section by section. God so loved what? The world. Okay. How did he love the world? He what? He gave what? His son. The love of God is applied specifically in his son. What we often hear talked about is this general Santa Claus-like love. The old man in the chair in heaven is kind of like grandpa and he just gives you what you want. He just gives you what you want. He loves, every, he loves us all the same, each and every one. But the reality is his love is expressed in his son. Okay? Now let's keep going. That whosoever, who are the whosoevers? The believers. So what we say to the world is God loved us so much that he sent his son to die for us. And we call them then in preaching the gospel to believe. And it's the love that he has for his son that, that is expressed to us, applied to us specifically in salvation that's under view in that text. All right, now, bigger than that, because I think we could back up telescoping to a bigger view. Does God love his creation? Absolutely. He loves all of his creation. Providentially, he is providing for every human. He's feeding them like birds. <clears throat> That's what Jesus says in Matthew. I know they get up, go to work, they work hard, they earn a paycheck. God does that. The abilities they have to do work, the abilities they have to go and be productive are given to them by God. The nests that are built for them are built by God. The checks that they bring home at the end of the week are, built, are given by God. The gifts graciously. So it's, that's an expression of his love. And there's so many more, but that's just one specific one kind of hits home, I think. 
to say, does our God love his creation? Yes, providentially he loves it all. But specifically, he gave his son. So we call them then to salvation in Christ. He doesn't love them all the same. We can't say that. Because that's to disregard his son. Uh, one example. <clears throat> Do I love all the children in this church? Absolutely. Absolutely. I love every child in this church. Um, when they cry, it breaks my heart. And I'll run to them. If you're not careful, I'll pick your kid up in the nursery and I'll hold them if they're crying. I'll soothe and I'll love. And if your kid falls down, I'll help your kid. But I don't do that in, against my own children. I have a very specific relationship with my children. I have a deeper obligation to my children than I have to yours. That's because I don't love your children. One's providential, one's specific in salvation. Ultimately, God's love for his son restrains the providential love and brings about the wrath of God on those who have rejected his son. So, can we say that God loves them? Sure. But we can't say he loves them savingly until they're saved. Sometimes we take all of the, all the characteristics of God and we fold them down to these very simple things. But it's very, it's simple in the sense it's not confused, but it's, it's broad. His love is big. That help? No. Romans 10, he's held out his hand to a stiff-necked and rebellious people. And they have, they have swatted, and the picture of the scripture is they pushed his hand away. He's held his hand out and they've shoved it aside. That's Romans 10. So, I mean, I, th I think we have to speak in the terms that the general call of God is out there. And we're to be a part of sharing the gospel with all men, all men. We'll get to evangelism next time. I'm going to talk about evangelism a lot tonight. But we're to make a general call to all men. But we understand that the specific call of God, Romans 8 call, is an internal call from the Spirit that happens we know not how. The wind blows where it wills. Question, other question, great, great question and follow-up. Any other questions? Yes. How do we talk with the? In a pluralistic society, it's a very uh, it gets you in some very dis, distinct uh, conflict. First of all, we in a short answer, we would say that we didn't we did not claim this to be God's word. It makes that claim for itself. It was not 
Um, it was not a hidden process by which we arrived at this holy Bible that we hold in our hands. It was a public process. Um, and you can read it. It's historical. The church did not make the Bible. The Bible made the church. The church recognized what they already had from God. The other alternatives for Scripture that we know of, that we have seen, are either the writing of one man, typically is done in private, and then it's brought forward as, here's the Word of God. I had a dream, a vision, holy grails floated down out of heaven, what, whatever they were. The Bible never came to us that way. The Bible was written by men who were moved by the Holy Spirit, First Peter tells us. And so as God moved them, they wrote. And then that was picked up by the church, either by the people of Israel or by the church in the New Covenant, and was used as edification for the whole body. And that process refined the Scriptures till some were weeded out. Some the others kept. Why? Based on very specific standards. And we could get into all that, but that's the answer to the Scripture. That's the short answer to the Scripture discussion. So if it is the Word of God, and by the way, the onus is on them. They have to prove it's not. That, and I'll, I know that will inflame, but that's what I typically say is, do you have proof that it's not the Word of God? Well, no, I just don't think it. Well, no, but come with some proof. Talk with me about it. For instance, you remember I mentioned the, the um, gospel of Jesus' wife? Several months ago, you know, it was all the rage, right? You do realize that now the founding professor has admitted it's a phony. It didn't last a month, six months. The whole rage, we found something that, it's great. I mean, and now she's come out and recanted and said, it's a phony. Every Coptic expert who's ever looked at it in detail says, that's, that's, a, that's obviously a phony. Simple uh, exploration has disproved this. The scripture's been around. The scriptures we hold in our hand has been tested for thousands of years. And it's still standing. And the world has raged against it, and it's still standing. So there's lots of anecdotal evidence we could put up there, too. It's not even scientific. Like, what's the number one selling book in the world? The Bible. And it has been for centuries. Why do people keep buying it? Why has it not been replaced? Why has it not gone out of print? Why, did we could, why is it in almost every tongue? So we could go to some anecdotal things after the really hard evidence. There's tons on the side of it's God's word. So if it's God's word then, to sum up, then I don't get to tell God what the way is. God tells me what the way is. So it's not arrogant for me to submit myself to the written word of God and say, He says, the, I, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. Just as one example, John 14, 6. That's not arrogant to bow the knee to that. What is arrogant is for individuals to say, I know all the evidence is there. I just don't want to believe it. And, and that's not a critical thing. It's just that's we all were there at one point in our life, in different stra- in different. We all were there at some point. So it's not prideful to bow the knee to God. Yes. 
That's right. Yes. And so our responsibility in evangelism, which I want to take up next time, not just because I'm trying to be stubborn, but it's just a big topic in itself. But I want you to understand that we don't leave here saying, well, there's some in, some out, so we just sit back and it all works itself out. That's not what God says. God calls us to go to all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God says, how will they have faith unless they hear? And how will they hear without a preacher? And how will they preach unless they are sent? How beautiful are the feet of those who take the gospel of peace? That's a quote from Isaiah. And so that the message must go forth. And he's not only predetermined what the message is, the gospel, he predetermined that, but he also predetermined the method by which the message would go forward, and that's his people preaching the message. He's done both. The way, the means, the end, they're all in his power, and he's pushed them for us. So he not only developed the plan, he then pre- pre- prepared the way that people come in contact with the plan, and that's our witness. Yes. Yeah. Okay, when we are in relationships with those people, um, do we see those relationships as evangelical or uh, more of a discipleship relationship? And if it's a discipleship type mentality that we're thinking of these people, is uh, am I correct in it being a mate to someone, a preacher, and not a, and also a modern, like in house? These people were eavesdropping on our Friday morning's discussions. <laughs> it's the hot topic, it seems like. Uh, the question is, is, if we have friends that, that believe differently, is it evangelism or discipleship? And I would say it's, it's discipleship, but evangelism is part of that. And, and I don't draw a lot of fuzzy lines. I take people at their word. So if Bruce and I know each other and Bruce says, I'm a believer, I take him at his word. All right. And so now let's start studying the Word together and walking together and holding each other accountable. And I'm taking you at your Word. And now when we hit the rough spots, myself or him, the Word of God wins out. We bow the knee to the Word of God, not him to me or me to him. And if that becomes resistant to the Word of God and goes further and further, what may be exposed is they don't have true faith. That may be what's exposed in him or in me. You see, but it's all under the...